So we are engaged in a uh, study through the book of Acts, and we're, we're still in chapter 1, 19 studies so far, just to get through the first 14 verses of Acts chapter 1. Um, that's a little bit more than I had anticipated, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to speed it up today. We're in <clears throat> verse 15, and we're going to try, Bob doesn't think I can accomplish this, but we're going to try to finish all of chapter 1 from 15 to 26 in one study today. Um, I hope you understand that I'm not going to be trying to skip over important stuff. Uh, When I do book studies, what I try to do is I try to give the right amount of attention to what the material really requires. So this portion is a little bit different than the first 14 verses. The first 14 verses are functioning really as an introduction to the rest of the book. And we needed to slow down. We needed to make sure we understood uh, that foundation, that framework for the rest of the book. Now we're in for today's study, what we would call a narrative portion, which is an important narrative. And there are two uh, key issues that are in focus in this portion, but we'll, we'll give the appropriate amount of attention, I think, to both of those main points. Let me read, though, from this section. So starting in verse 15, and just very briefly, where we're at is we're in the upper room with the disciples. We're in the 10-day waiting period between the ascension of Christ. He is just, as far as their experience is concerned, he has just ascended back to heaven. And they have been instructed by him, don't yet leave the city of Jerusalem. Wait there because something is about to happen and it's connected with what he called the promise of the Father, which we know and they will certainly experience in chapter 2 as the outpoured Holy Spirit. But in the meantime, between the day of the ascension and the appointed day of Pentecost where the Lord had planned to pour out the Spirit of God, there's a 10-day period in between those two events, those two dates on the, on the spiritual calendar, so to speak. And so they are in the upper room, and what we saw in our last study is they are they are faithfully and obediently staying in the city of Jerusalem as the Lord instructed them. They are waiting, not passively just sitting there in the upper room twiddling each other's thumbs and or their own thumbs and then looking at their looking at their cell phones to just, you know, kind of catch up on what's going on in the internet. Um, they are actively in a focused and spiritually significant way. They are seeking the Lord. They are praying. And they're, they're in, as it's described in the, in the portion we've just studied, they're in what we would call spiritual unity. They're in one accord. And so that's where we're picking up. In verse 15 now, we're in the upper room with them during that 10-day period. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. 
and all his bowels gushed out. Who is right? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, and this is a reference to uh, the Aramaic language, which was the common language in Jerusalem. It was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. All right, so I want to, if you're looking for this message later on Sermon Audio, I want to call this message simply replacing Judas. And that's the the primary focus of this portion of the narrative, in that in this time of seeking the Lord and unified prayer in the upper room, uh, at least one of the apostles, the 11 remaining ones, because Judas is now dead, uh, one of the remaining apostles, Peter, stands up in the midst of the rest, and he he calls the attention of all the 120 who have been seeking the Lord on the uh, kind of rehearsing the story of what's happened to Judas just a few days before, but not just rehearsing the story for the sake of telling the story, but rehearsing it by way of giving some spiritual context to why Judas's story unfolded the way it did and ended how it did. And he connects it to portions, specific portions of Scripture, which I'll identify in a minute. Specific portions of Scripture from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what was known to them at that moment only as the Scriptures. He connects the events connected to Judas with uh, specific portions of Scripture. And he sees not just a kind of like a forced connection, like I'm going to, and, and this, is, this is possible to happen among good-hearted believers, and I've seen it too many times over my years of being a pastor, and that is having, having a desire to make something that's happened in your life more significant than it actually is, and then going to the Bible and finding a passage that you think fits with what's going on in your life and kind of forcing the passage to speak directly to the circumstance and event in your life. Um, That can actually be a mishandling of God's word. And Peter connects the Old Testament scriptures to this event that's happened with Judas, but he's not forcing it. He's seeing a spiritual fulfillment. And in this moment, we know this with confidence now that the Lord has seen that this entire interaction that's happening in the upper room is preserved for us in the account of the book of Acts. 
Therefore, we can be confident that Peter in this moment is speaking what we would say rightly under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that his words actually now become scripture along with the conclusions that he's drawing about the connections to the present events with the past writing about them in what we call Bible prophecy. Now, we will dig into this whole section and try to make um, full sense of it, but what I want to do for a moment is just head back, if you would join me, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And I think this passage, of course, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And I think there's an intentional connection here that we're meant to see in, in terms of explaining why this was on Peter's heart during this 10 days of seeking the Lord. I'm going to read from, I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read from um, starting in verse 44 of Luke 24. And this is one of, remember we studied earlier in the book of Acts chapter 1 that there was this 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ where Jesus appeared to his disciples 10 key times. He wasn't with them day and night throughout that 40-day period, but he would appear to them, he would spend time with them, he would talk with them, he would interact with them, and then he would disappear, and they would be waiting for his next appearance. And this is one of those 10 key appearances, and in this, he draws their attention to something super important as they're moving forward in terms of, of moving into a new leadership role that he has appointed for them as apostles. Luke twenty four forty four. the Lord Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what we understand from what Jesus said to, to the disciples in this moment is that there are many portions of Scripture in the Old Testament. Here, all of the segments, all of the sections of the Old Testament are identified. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So that really what we're, we, how we could say it is the entire Old Testament. And Jesus identifies that many of those portions were written concerning him. They were written hundreds of years before he came into this world, but they were written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking ahead to the moment that he would arrive in this world and describing some aspect or element of his arrival, his life, his experiences, his mission, his nature, his character, his purpose in coming to this world, and then how he accomplished that great purpose that God had given to him. Now, verse 45, in verse 44, essentially what he's doing is he's, he's mildly, I say mildly in that he could have been a lot harsher than he actually was, but he's mildly rebuking them in verse 44. He's, he's letting them know, look, the scriptures have been with you. You should have seen, you should have understood, you should have recognized these things. But he's reminding them all of these things that were written about me must be fulfilled. 
But verse 40, 45, now he introduces something to them that they've never experienced before. And he's giving them a new spiritual equipment. He's giving them a new capacity. He's giving by the power of God a new ability to understand the things that have been right in front of their face in the scriptures for all of the generations of Israel's history. They've been there their entire lives in this world. I'm talking about the 11 apostles. Yet they had not seen and had not known, had not understood these things. So verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's somewhat mysterious. It's somewhat challenging for us. I mean, how did he do that exactly? He didn't physically reach into their brains and flip a switch. But by the power of God, he did actually affect them. He influenced them. He, by the the Spirit's work inside of them, where it's not possible for one natural human being to reach into the brain of another natural human being and cause a new level of understanding in this kind of way. It's not that he did what I'm doing right now. I am, in a sense, influencing your brains and your minds and giving you a new level of understanding that you didn't have before this study started today. But I'm not doing it in the same way that Christ did it in this circumstance. I'm actually taking us to specific passages and I'm just explaining their meaning and their implication and then hopefully their application to our lives eventually. But he's immediately opening their minds to understand the whole thing. They have not really gotten it. That the story, the main story, the main theme, the main point of the entire Old Testament is Christ and his mission. All of history leading up to and culminating in his arrival into this world and all that he was meant to accomplish by entering into this world. And so in a moment's time, and that's the clear implication here, this wasn't, he sat them down for the next three months and took them into an in-depth study, intensive study program. And at the end of that, they go, oh, now we get it. You've, you've taught us through the entire, from Genesis to Malachi, we see it now. In a moment's time, he changed their capacity to understand the scriptures. And then he says to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. So he, he connects all that the Old Testament has described about him to their present mission and future mission and then, of course, he, um, he in a sense, uh, begins to release them to that mission at that point. So now we're fast forwarding a few days later. Christ is now ascended to heaven. They're in the upper room. They're praying for these 10 days. But uppermost on the mind of Peter apparently is some of what Jesus had opened their minds to understand. And what Peter focuses on is one specific element of the story of what Christ would suffer. We think in terms of the suffering of Christ first and foremost, as we should, the cross. And of course, even the tortures that he endured leading up to the final execution on the cross itself. But one of the things that he endured, and it was certainly an experience of real suffering for him, is he endured the betrayal of a close companion, a close friend. 
Has anybody ever had the experience of someone really close to you? Someone that you love, someone that you cared deeply about, someone that you actually trusted stabbing you in the back, so to speak, pulling the rug out from under you, causing you know, great turmoil and trial in your life because of a betrayal of some promise or trust that um, they had shared with you. That's what happened here. Jesus had chosen 12 specific men to be his closest disciples and followers. And for the next three years, day and night, without, with very, only very short breaks, and not breaks for vacation, but there was a, a circumstance in which he sent them out on what we would call a short-term mission, and so they were outside of his immediate personal physical presence for very short periods of time, or like he would go sometimes all night long and pray and, and uh, spend time with his heavenly father. They weren't necessarily with him in each one of those circumstances. But other than those brief breaks in terms of their fellowship they were with him all the time those 12 men they formed connection they formed bonds and one of those men we know as judas iscariot one of those men ultimately um, betrayed him uh, turned him over to the to the powers that be in the city of jerusalem that as we studied through the gospel of matthew we know that they had met in uh, in secret, in back rooms, so to speak. They had conspired not just to remove Jesus from an influential position in, in um, Jewish society, but they had conspired to murder him. Their, their entire intention was to, was to take him out of this world altogether. And Judas was the one, of course, that uh, brought that about in terms of setting that whole thing in motion. So in this circumstance, as the disciples are praying, as they're seeking the Lord in the upper room, what we see in verse 15 is that Peter stood up among the brothers, among the 120, and he says this in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So one thing that Peter gets super clear, and I see this as a direct connection and correlation to the passage we've already read back in Luke 24, and that is he's in the mode of looking differently at the Old Testament prophetic passages, especially those ones now that Jesus has opened his minds to understand uh, that relate to the Messiah's story. And this portion of the story is what Peter is concerned about. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Um, I don't know about you. I think I can probably speak on your behalf. This is certainly the case with me. The Judas betrayal portion of the story of Jesus and leading up to the cross, it's not my favorite part of the story. Is it anybody here favorite part of the story? You know, oh, isn't that great? You know, look at this. Look at what, what's happening. Uh, you guys may not remember there was a uh, there was a missionary by the name of Don Richardson. He wrote a a book uh, named Peace Child. We were uh, Sandy and I were thinking about this just recently, and uh, kind of kind of talking about our experience of the blessing of having met him years ago. He's now with the Lord and uh, we had an opportunity to meet him, get to know him a little bit, spend a little bit of time with him. 
But um, he had ministered to a, a group of, a tribe really of, of uh, cannibal headhunters in Indonesia, people that were as far away as you can possibly get from walking in righteousness. And uh, what he discovered as he was attempting to take the gospel to this tribe of people was that um, they, they valued certain qualities in human interaction, social interaction, that were different than the qualities you and I would value. Like one of the most important qualities, if I'm getting to know you and if I'm considering whether or not I'm going to invest in a friendship with you, is are you trustworthy? Are you faithful in terms of friendship connections? Uh, That matters as much to me as any other quality I could possibly consider in you. This tribe of cannibal headhunters valued the exact opposite qualities. They did not value trustworthiness and faithfulness. They they valued and, and considered it the pinnacle of human character development. They valued the ability to deceive another person. And so they actually considered to be praiseworthy if uh, one man in the tribe would do something like this, that he would meet someone from another tribe, uh, pretend to be their friend, uh, kind of draw them into a, a, a relationship, invite them over for dinner to his hut, only to discover once they arrived that they were the main course for the dinner. So... I'm inviting you over to my house for dinner. You walk through the front door and instead of sitting down and enjoying a dinner, we sit down and enjoy you as the main course of the dinner. You is right. So when he first, I'm talking about Don Richardson, trying to reach this tribe of the gospel, when he first told them the gospel story, including the Judas part of the story, they concluded in the first hearing of the story that Judas was the hero of the story. They didn't have any bad feelings about Jesus. They just thought he was the weak victim and that Judas was the, was the strong character in the story because he deceived and took advantage and betrayed. And they thought, we want to be more like Judas. And of course, that creates a whole... Uh, additional level, additional barrier to the effective communication of the gospel. Uh, By the grace of God, eventually that tribe was one to the Lord. Eventually that tribe did come to know the Lord and was transformed by it. They no longer value that, that wicked characteristic in the way that they previously did. And they understand clearly now who the true hero of the story is. But in this circumstance, as Peter is telling this one portion of the story and focusing attention on Judas. Everybody in that upper room knows that Jesus is the good guy and Judas was the bad guy. But what I want you to see in this telling of the story, this portion today, is that Peter sees something about the story that would be easy to overlook, but it's super important that those of us who know the Lord don't overlook it. And while you and I were not there when Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus suffered because of it, there is an application of this portion of the story that is meant to speak to our lives. And it's again found in verse 16. Let me reread it. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. 
what I want you to see, and I mean, it's just sitting there obvious for all of us to see, but it's easy to read past it and not really get the full impact and benefit of it. And that is, yes, the scriptures told the story in advance of Jesus, but they also told the story of Judas in advance. Now, what does that imply? What does that indicate? The story of Judas was known and told before he was ever even born. What that tells me is that God's sovereignty extends even to that degree. Sometimes when we consider the concept of God's sovereignty in history, our natural tendency is to think that God is sovereign over only the good stuff that happens to us. And so, you know, we pray kind of like, Lord, extend your power, your sovereignty, your authority, and make more of the good stuff happen for us. But the clear implication here is that God is sovereign even over the worst of bad stuff that happens in this world. We've had some super bad stuff happen in this nation just in this last week. Um, And stuff like that will continue to happen, sadly, because of the wickedness that fills this world and the continuing echoing down through every generation of human history of human wickedness because of the principle of sin that is so continuously active in the hearts of fallen and disconnected from God human beings. But where is God's sovereignty in all of that? Where was God's sovereignty as Judas thought to himself that night? You remember, it happened at the Last Supper. Judas got up in the middle of the Last Supper as Jesus had just offered him a portion of the the bread that he had dipped in the dipping sauce and handed it to Judas. And Judas then gets up and leaves the room And he's thinking probably what? No one knows what I'm doing. I am getting away with something here. Even the master doesn't really get what I'm about to do to him. And he goes and he meets with the the Jewish religious leadership in the city of Jerusalem, the temple uh, priesthood and, and the political leadership in the Sanhedrin and they form this this agreement, they pay him 30 pieces of silver and he then proceeds to lead the, the contingent of mixed Roman guards and temple guards, Jewish temple guards, and he leads them out to where he knows Jesus is going next, which is the Garden of Gethsemane, and they, of course, arrest Jesus. He comes up and, and greets Jesus by kissing him on the cheek Uh, in an apparent expression of of close, faithful, trusted companionship and friendship. But the whole time he is preparing to immediately, spiritually speaking, stab him in the back. What I want us to fully get is that none of that caught God the Father off guard and none of that caught God the Son off guard. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was doing and God in the entire event had to have been sovereign over it. How so? Well, if I were to tell you some 1,000 years, let's say, before it actually happened, exactly what was going to happen in the lives of two individuals 1,000 years from now, 
and let's say I was speaking absolute truth about what was going to happen, how could you be certain and confident that it would actually really happen the way that I said it would? Would you be willing to just take the risk that just by chance and coincidence, there will be two individuals that will play out a scenario in their relationship a thousand years from now when you're long gone, the one who told me about it or the one who listened to the story. A thousand years from now, this thing will unfold exactly the way I said it would. Would you be willing to take the risk if your life was on the line in that scenario that yes, it will happen exactly like that? If I'm just guessing about the future, how could I possibly guess with that level of accuracy? Unless... I'm speaking as a prophet spoke those words in the Old Testament scriptures about Judas, and I'm speaking on behalf of the one who is in charge of history and oversees it to such a degree, to such an extent, that he is able to ensure with 100% accuracy and certainty that those events will happen in generations in the future exactly as he actually described them in the past. Now, there's lots and lots of questions that that can raise in terms of, well, then what is God doing at the moment that bad things actually happen? And I don't want to turn this study into a philosophical consideration of God's sovereignty. Those questions are worth asking. They're worth thinking about. They're worth biblically questioning in terms of your heart's desire to really understand God's relationship with history. But I do want you to be clear about this. God is that much in charge of what happens in this world. So much so that he said, Judas, he didn't use the name Judas, but in terms of identifying one of the close companions of the Messiah, Judas will do exactly what he ended up doing in exactly the way that the Lord described generations in advance that he would do it. Now, in terms of the circumstances of what Peter is addressing here, and we're just looking here together at these first five or so verses, 15 through 20. He goes through and essentially just briefly retells the story of what happened to Judas. So in verse 15 or 16, he makes sure we understand the, the spiritual ramifications of God's sovereignty as I've been focused on it. But then starting in verse 17, he says, speaking of Judas, he was numbered among us. That means among the 12 disciples who then become 12 apostles. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry, which simply harkens back to the fact that Jesus chose him to be part of the 12. Jesus knew, and we're told this in one of the gospel accounts, he knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. He was never even for a single moment deceived into thinking, this Judas, man, he's got some character issues, but he's going to turn out better after I spend three years and really invest myself in him. He knew from the beginning that Judas would end up being exactly as wicked as he was at the end. Then in verse 18, Peter rehearses what happened to Judas after the great moment of betrayal. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. 
and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field, the field underneath where his, his body lay, the field was called in their own language a keldama. That is, it simply means or translates directly as field of blood. Now, there's a little bit of an interpretive problem here, and uh, it's something, uh, it, you know, it, it's been a little bit of time since we were uh, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. But the only other account of the death of Judas that's found in Scripture is uh, written in the Gospel of Matthew, and we did study it when we went through Matthew. So I'm not going to take you back through all the details, but I do want to take us back and just rehearse the Matthew account real quickly. And we're looking here in Matthew chapter 27. So it wasn't terribly long ago that we were in Matthew 27. And I'm just going to read the account, and I'm going to point out a couple of potential discrepancies. What I mean by that is we have Luke's account in Acts 1 of what happened when Judas died. Now we're going to read Matthew's account. Luke and Matthew are two different people, two different gospel writers. And some have noticed there are different points of emphasis in the death story of Judas. And some have in those differences of the telling of the death of Jesus have said, see, the scripture can't be counted on. It's not ultimately trustworthy because Matthew says Judas died this way. Luke says he died a completely different way. Um, I think you understand this by now that And it is a point of faith. I'll just say this. It is a point of faith. And this is where my faith is. I believe that the Lord himself, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, inspired Matthew to write his gospel account. I believe that the Lord inspired Luke to write his gospel account and inspired Luke to write Acts chapter 1 in the way that he has meaning one inspiration at work in both men that wrote these two different accounts. So either they're not inspired, and therefore it's easy to understand how we have different accounts. Has everyone at one time in their life played what, they used to call it the telephone game, I don't know what they call it anymore, where you whisper into, you know, there's a line of people, you whisper into the ear one set of facts, and you go through the room, and by the end, you have the person say out loud what started as the story at the beginning. And the story at the end is always different than what you start at the beginning because kind of people summarize what they've heard and they say different words. They don't memorize it. So you end up with two completely different stories. Is that what happened with Matthew and Luke? Are they telling different stories? Or are they telling one story and focusing on different details. And I believe, of course, that it's the latter. Anyway, here's Matthew's account, starting in verse 3 of Matthew 27, the death of Judas. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. What I emphasized when we went through this together is that there was a recognition of his sin on Judas's part, but it did never, it never, that recognition never led him to what we call repentance. He regretted his actions, but he never repented for his actions. Anyway, it goes on to say, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? The priest speaking, see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out and key words here, hanged himself. Suicide by hanging. 
But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful for us to put them into the treasury since it is blood money, which is why it eventually also becomes known as the field of blood. So they took counsel and bought with them, bought with the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood, as Luke describes in Acts 1, to this day. Then it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him, on him, on whom a price has been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So there are a couple of issues. One is, Luke says in Acts 1 that Judas bought the field. Matthew says that the priests bought the field. Which is it? And the answer is it's both, because it was Judas's money, but the priests could not give it into the treasury because it was blood money. So they took the money of Judas belonging to him, therefore it was his field that was purchased, and indirectly Judas purchased the field through the priesthood's activity or actions in acting in a sense as his agent even after his death. The other question though is how Luke describes his death and uh, I've read it a couple of times. I don't think I need to read it again. It's pretty gory in terms of Luke's description but the key piece of information is it says in verse 18 he fell headlong whereas Matthew says he hanged himself. So which is it? Did he hang himself or did he fall headlong? If you don't believe in the inspiration of Matthew and, and Luke as they're writing these two accounts, then you just say, well, they have different stories and who knows, in history there's different accounts because people hear the story differently. If you believe they're both speaking by the Spirit of God and both are accurately and truthfully describing what actually happened, is there a way that these two could be telling the same story? And there absolutely is. So this is what I believe happened. Judas went out and hanged himself exactly as Matthew said. But it was not lawful in the Jewish community. He wasn't far from Jerusalem where he hung himself. It was not lawful if you discovered a dead hanging body in the way that his body would eventually be discovered. It was not lawful to leave the body hanging where it was hanging. And so they would, of course, cut the body down. And I guarantee you there would be no one standing under the body to catch the body. So when they cut the body down, his body fell, hit the ground, and then Luke describes that as it hit the ground, um, it burst open, even to the extent that all of his uh, insides you know, came pouring out or bursting out onto the ground. And it is a gory description, but I think it's purposeful. I think Luke gives us that level of detail, even risking kind of making us feel a little queasy. Why would he do that? Why would he tell the story in that kind of gory way? To, to just demonstrate, I think, to us, this is, this is where wickedness ends up. This is the end of the story of wickedness. Everybody has an end to their story. And in scripture, you know, the end of the story is important. You know, as God is evaluating a person's life, and this, this is where his story ends. It's not a good end to the story. You know, I mean, there's a the end, but it's meant to be like a, it's meant to be like a morality story to impact our hearts and to show us you don't want to even start down the pathway that Judas traveled to its bitter and gory end because this is where that pathway leads. So um, what Peter does is he recognizes there's a couple of passages of scripture 
We won't take the time. I'm going to identify them for you. We're not going to take the time to go back to these passages of Scripture and read them in detail. And and, um, I'm not going to teach through exactly why these passages are appropriate application to the events that happened in the life of Judas. But let me just give you the two passages that he references. And here we're talking about verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. Peter is seen, whoever is being described there back in the days that the psalm was written, he's seen an application prophetically to Judas. And in his heart's perspective, his equals Judas. May the camp of Judas become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And and the word and just references, this is a second Bible reference from the Old Testament scriptures. Let another take his office. All right, so the two passages are Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Psalm 69 is easy to see as a messianic connection. It is one of the more important messianic psalms in all of the 150 psalms. There are at least five places in other portions of the New Testament that um, Psalm 69 in other details that it addresses uh, connect very directly to the story of Jesus, story of the Messiah, his experiences, what's going on in his mind and heart as he is going through those experiences as he fulfills the mission of God. And then Psalm 109 is focused on the replacement concept. So Peter draws a conclusion from these two portions. Our only, our only consideration is, was Peter getting ahead of himself here? He sees a necessity to replace the 12th apostle. There's 11 of them at this present moment. And you know how it is. I'm kind of like this. Like David and I have a running joke about the pulpit here. Like I want the pulpit. In fact, it was just a little bit off. I want the pulpit like this. I don't know what it looks like from your side, but to me it looks very symmetrical. You know, it's like just where it belongs. Sometimes David will come in and he'll purposely like tweak it just to see if I notice. <laughs> it's just a little, you know, pastor to pastor uh, humor in there. <laughs> so, you know, for me, if there's 11, there were 12, there's 11. Oh, I'm sorry. We got to get a 12 guy in here. We got to get him in here quick. You know, it's just symmetrical. 12 is a nice round number. 11 is not round at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So um, was Peter doing that? Was he just like reacting naturally? I don't think so. Why? What's the context? And there are, by the way, there are some that believe he was. Um, There's a famous English uh, Bible pastor, teacher. Um, He was actually the guy that preceded Martin Lloyd-Jones in the church that they both pastored at different times in in English history. His name was uh, G. Campbell Morgan. Good teacher, solid, solid brother in the Lord. Uh, but he read this portion. He said, Peter got ahead of himself. They made a mistake. They shouldn't have done what they did trying to replace Judas. He believed that Paul the Apostle was the replacement for Judas. And at a younger point in my, in my studies of God's word, I was influenced by that perspective. And I thought, oh, that makes really good sense to me because one of the things we notice about Paul the Apostle is much of the rest of the New Testament is focused on the ministry of Paul. How much... How much is, because they end up choosing Matthias or Matthias, how much is Matthias focused on after this in the New Testament? This is the last time you hear of him. 
He's focused on here. His name is mentioned here. Never again in the book of Acts. Never again in any of the New Testament letters. But there are others of the 12 that you never hear of again either. So I don't think that's a... uh, I don't think that's an ironclad case. And I don't believe now that Peter was making a mistake. The context is they've just spent 40 days with the Lord Jesus. They've just been spending these 10 days in the upper room seeking the Lord in spiritual unity. They are focused. They're in a good place. Their hearts are open to what the Lord is wanting to do in them and through them and with them. And they have just received from the Lord a new mind-opening perspective and understanding about how the Old Testament prophecies apply to the story of Jesus, including Judas. So I think Peter's right on point, actually, in standing up and saying, uh, look, here are two portions from Psalm... He doesn't name them, but he's, he's essentially referencing two portions from Psalm 69 and then one portion from Psalm 109, and he's drawing the right conclusion. So in that conclusion, we need a replacement. Um, how do they go about choosing the replacement? What they do is they do something that this is actually the last time you see it in Scripture. It's not the first time it's seen in Scripture, but this, in Acts chapter 1, is the last time you ever see it, and that is what was called in those days casting lots. Casting lots is a very specific activity. It had to do, generally speaking, with you would take a jar, you know, normally it would be like an earthen jar, and you would take two small stones, and in this case, there's two individuals that they're choosing between. One by the name of... um, of justice in his Roman name and his other name here is, uh, gosh, it's escaping me, justice and his name is, uh, from a Hebrew standpoint, Joseph called Barsabbas. So they got Joseph and they've got Matthias. And what they would do is take two small stones and write the name of the individual on each stone. So you have a, a Joseph stone and a Matthias stone and they would put them in the wooden, I mean the earthen jar and then they would start shaking up the jar and as they're shaking up the jar, eventually one of the two stones would tumble out first. And whichever stone would tumble out first, that would be where the lot was cast. And they would take that as the Lord's guidance, the Lord's direction in this circumstance. It would be that culture's equivalent to us saying, I'm not sure what to do in this circumstance. We've got two options. Let's do this. Let's flip a coin. How many of you have ever flipped the coin to make a decision in your life? All right, stop it. That's not the right way to make decisions. Unless, unless it's a very minor decision and it doesn't matter and you're just doing it for fun, then fine, flip coins all day long if you want to just have fun flipping coins. But if it's like, okay, are we going to go to this church or this church? Are we going to live in this city or in this city? Am I going to marry this person or this person? Am I going to go to work at this job and this career or this job and this career? Just flip a coin. (laughs) Don't do that. So, This is pretty important, don't you think? They're choosing a 12th apostle. So it's a popular viewpoint. I used to also be convinced in this perspective, but my perspective has shifted and changed somewhat. I used to think they totally blew it here. 
And there are some that do think they totally blew it by casting lots for the 12th apostle. I don't believe they did blow it, and the reason is this. It was God's appointed way of making big decisions in what we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament time period. Now, was what was happening right at this moment in the Old Testament time period still? Yes and no. They're in the final transition between covenants. The Old Covenant is still in force. But the new covenant has just been introduced by Jesus at the Last Supper. And they are now part of the new covenant, but they haven't had at this present moment, just before chapter 2 starts, they haven't had the full experience of what we call the new covenant experience. They have not had the experience of what Jesus described earlier in chapter 1 here as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When they have that experience in chapter 2, never again in the book of Acts, never again in any of the New Testament letters, never again in Scripture after this point do you see anyone casting lots, any of the people of the Lord casting lots as a means of making decisions. I believe this is the last time that the Lord allowed it and that the Lord was fine with them doing exactly what they did. This is based, I'll give you a couple of passages of scripture. I'm at the end of the time. I won't have the time to take us here. But these are casting lot passages to give you an example from the Old Testament scriptures. The first is Proverbs 16, verse 33, which just simply describes the principle involved. And maybe I will go back and read that one. And then in Joshua chapter 14, you have a really important example of casting lots in the life of the people of God, which was as they had come into the promised land and now had conquered the land as the Lord had called them to do, now they were going to divide up the land. And the question was, which tribe will get which portion of the land? Because Even though the promised land was all wonderful and beautiful, some of it was even better than others. So which tribe gets the prime real estate? And the way they went about doing that was they cast lots. And the principle involved, and let's go to the Proverbs passage now. Proverbs 16 describes the spiritual principle, really the, the heart of faith involved in the activity of the casting of lots. 1633, the lot is cast into the lap, meaning the person shaking the jar is going to shake it until one of those stones pops out of the jar into his lap, which then reveals the decision that's to be made. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision. It's the lot's every decision, not the person making the decision. The lot's every decision is from the Lord which just simply, again, just like we were focused on with the Judas story, in the second portion of this story, there's a second emphasis on the sovereignty of God. How far, how far reaching is the sovereignty of God? And now, in terms of how important decisions were being made until the experience that's yet ahead of us in chapter two, where they are filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with God's Spirit. Now they have a new relationship that they've never had before with the Spirit of God. Now they no longer need to cast lots. Now they no longer do cast lots. So the question remains, and we'll talk about this as we go forward, but how do they make decisions from then on differently? Yes, God's sovereignty is still involved, but now decisions are made by seeking the Lord 
and discerning and applying principles from Scripture to real-life circumstances. And of course, that's how God calls us to make big decisions because we have been blessed to have the same core spiritual experience of God's Spirit in our salvation as they had as well. So the end of the story, the lot is cast. Matthias is the one, the stone that falls out of the jar first, uh, indicating that this is the Lord's choice. And we go forward. And the fact that he's never mentioned again uh, doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, diminish the importance and the significance of his ministry, just like um, the fact that some of the other of the 12 apostles who are never mentioned after this in scripture, their ministry is not diminished as well. Now, in terms of though what Peter said was important to consider, not just the casting of lots, but how did they arrive at these two men? How did they choose these two to cast lots over? And what he did was he identified that there was a standard. Uh, remember I had mentioned Campbell Morgan. He believed that, uh, that Paul the Apostle was meant to be the 12th Apostle. But what, what Campbell Morgan apparently missed in the passage, and we shouldn't miss it because Peter focuses our attention on it, is there a certain standard of choosing the 12th Apostle. And Paul couldn't possibly qualify for that 12th apostle position now later he was paul was appointed by the lord himself as a true apostle but he couldn't have been among the 12 because he didn't qualify in the way that peter said was essential and that is number one the man that's chosen has to have been a follower of christ along with the others right from the beginning of the story and where peter says the story began is when jesus was baptized by john the baptist Why is that the start of the story rather than going back to Bethlehem? Because no one except probably Mary, his mother, knew that the Messiah had just entered the world at Bethlehem. The three uh, wise men, of course, would be an exception as well. But at his baptism, what happens is that's the point where John begins to proclaim, this is the one that God has chosen because God showed me, told me in advance, the one on whom you see a dove descending and remaining, that's my chosen one. That's the Messiah. And John began to proclaim that. So that's where his followers began to to actually follow Christ. And so, number one, he had to have been there from the beginning. Paul the Apostle didn't qualify to be there from the beginning. Second, he must have been a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He must have seen the physical resurrected Jesus like the 11 apostles had. Now we know there's a passage in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we won't turn to it, but Paul testifies that there was one of the resurrection appearances where Jesus appeared to 500 of his disciples in one single appearance. And so certainly out of those 500, we would have been able to pick at least two. And of the two that are picked, while the testimony is not in scripture, one of the earliest Christian historians, a man by the name of Eusebius, living in a a later generation, he identified that both of these candidates, both Joseph and uh, Matthias, were among what were known as the 70. I won't take us back there as we went through the Gospel of Matthew, what we've discovered, and this is, uh, this is also uh, really highlighted in the Gospel of Luke, 
But in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, at one point he sent the 12 out on a short-term mission. And at another point, what he did was he called 70 of his closest disciples and sent them out in pairs, two by two, throughout the entire land of Israel and proclaiming his soon arrival and the soon arrival of the kingdom of God. And so uh, Eusebius says that both of these candidates were among the 70. So they had not just been hanging around from the beginning, but they had been engaged in ministry for, for at least three years now in their following of the Lord Jesus. And so Matthias is chosen, and that leads us up at the end of chapter one to we're right on the right on the cusp of moving into the next great event in early church history, which is what we call the day of Pentecost. And of course, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that unfolds and follows from that. We'll save that for, Lord willing, two weeks from today. We'll just start chapter two. Uh, If you're trying to plan ahead, we're going to be in chapter two for quite some time, like we were in chapter one. I'm not going to be in any rush to work through it. It's so important. But uh, we have home church next Sunday. So I hope to see you back two weeks from now for Acts chapter two, verse one. God bless you.